I'm going to invite you to the book of Ruth, chapter 3. If you're in the Old Testament, it's eight books into the Old Testament. Ruth is a small book. It's only four chapters, right after Judges. Easy to pass by it. Um, and anyway, as you find that, let me just give you a little backdrop as, as to where we're going and, and how the story has unfolded. Uh, we're four weeks into this series together. Today, we are going to get our hands a little dirty in what we discuss. But if you remember the story of Ruth, uh, it starts with a man named Elimelech who takes his family out of God's promised land with God's people in, into a land where God told his people not to be. They're in Moab, which is about 30 to 50 miles from Bethlehem where Elimelech and his family was. And as they made that, uh, they made that journey, Elimelech and his family find sickness and death. Uh, Elimelech, his two sons, Malon Kilion, die and he leaves behind his wife and his two daughter-in-laws. They're all widows, which is Naomi, who was Elimelech's wife, Ruth and Orpah, his two daughter-in-laws. And Orpah goes back to her people. Ruth stays with Naomi and they journey back to uh, Jerusalem with faith in God. Ruth puts her faith in the Lord, trusting that he will provide. Ruth knew if she left Naomi to herself, she would inevitably, most likely she would die. Uh, She was older in years, not able to to work land and and help provide for herself in that way. And she owned nothing. She was um, poor, destitute, without, without provision in life. And so Ruth joined her on this journey back to Bethlehem in order to help provide for her life in hopes of finding redemption. And then we're introduced to this man named Boaz, whose his name literally means strong man. He's the antithesis of Elimelech. Elimelech's only interested in putting food on the table. Boaz is interested in, in the well-being uh, holistically of, of a human being. He's a, he's a godly man. And he inevitably marries Ruth, which we'll get to next week, and becomes kinsman redeemer. And it's a foreshadowing of the, of the future of the Messiah. So that's kind of the, the, the story of Ruth. But when you get to Ruth chapter 3, this is kind of one of those places that makes your grandmother blush. This is not the sort of the story that you're going to sit down and study together uh, because of the contents. You remember the, the, the book of Ruth is in narrative form, which means uh, the Bible's not always interested in keeping everything just roses and peachy for you. Uh, it shares the events as they took place. And just because it shares a narrative doesn't mean it's prescriptive for your life. So everything that we're saying today, I'm not saying now go duplicate Ruth chapter three. It just so happens the gracious hand of God intervenes and prevents something uh, bad happening in this circumstance. Uh, But in Ruth uh, chapter three, what we're going to find is uh, it's, it's not the most beautiful story when you think of godliness. If you're reading the Bible, you think I only want perfect things. Don't read Ruth chapter three. You know, someone asked me once, uh, when it comes to the, the bad parts of the Bible, what do you do when you have your kids and you read the bad parts of the Bible and they're expecting, you know, I'm a pastor. So I'm going to say, well, we just skip over those. You know, we're not, we're not going to read that. No, it's just, we want everything to look perfect in your life. And I, and I just said to them, I read it. And they're like, they were blown away. You read it. Yes, I read it. <laughs> it's in the Bible for a reason. I want my kids to know that. And now I, I will tell you, um, there are certain things that are a little more age appropriate than others. Like this, this is a little, uh, maybe a little TMI here, but we watched that movie star with our kids the other day, which is like the, the coming of Jesus, the birth of Jesus and Mary's walking around pregnant and they cut to the place where Mary's about to have the baby. And the next time they cut back, Mary has the baby and, and our youngest one opens up and says, man, I really wanted to see when her belly opened up and the baby was we're like, no, Stacey, I wonder like, how are they going to navigate this with the kids? She, he just, they just think the, the baby <laughs> comes out there. And so anyway, interesting things with kids and there's certain things that are, that are 
appropriate, not appropriate, and how you handle it. Like when you read a children's Bible, for example, like the, the life of, 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 of Noah, uh, you usually see these animals just hanging out in the boat. Everyone's happy. But when you think about the story, I mean, it's like death, destruction, man. It's not, it is, it is not the rosy peaches that you might read in, the kids, in a kid's Bible. So there's certain things at different times that you just kind of get a little more detailed. But the reason I say when we get to those places in the Bible, the reason we want to read it is because if you don't, someone will, right? Someone will influence your children. And it's better one who walks with God to be able to produce wisdom in in the midst of a scenario in the life of your child uh, than, than to rely on somebody else. And God's got you there for a reason. And you have an opportunity to speak into their lives, not just shy away from things when they aren't going that well, but to show them how to walk with wisdom and navigate the adversity of life. They're going to encounter it, right? You you think statistically in our society, a lot of young people leave the faith uh, around their college years. They get to these places with these professors and these secular universities that challenge some things in their Christian faith. They may not have heard it before. They're thinking, their pastor lied to them. They didn't tell them all this. And so this guy must be true because they've trusted in this, this teacher that has this authority. And all of a sudden they start following. I, had, I heard a young man tell me once, he was in this, this class where the professor was trying to tell them that the miracles in the Bible, they weren't really miracles. They were just sort of romanticized uh, things that took place. And he, he went back to the Exodus and he was talking about how when, when people of Israel were coming out of Egypt and they were uh, slaves and they come to the, the Red Sea, it's actually translated Reed Sea, so they got it wrong. And if you look at the Reed Sea, it's only three feet deep, so it's not that miraculous that God's people walk across three feet of water. Anyone can do that. And the young man just said, all of a sudden, he started praising God in the midst of that circumstance, and the professor was just blown away. Why are you praising God for something that's not that miraculous? They crossed the, the three feet of water. That's not that big a deal. And the young man said, yeah, but he drowned all of Pharaoh's army in three feet of water. How amazing is that, right? But, you know, we, we don't always have those clever responses in the midst of those challenges. And, and so having people walk life with you is important. Parents, um, when you get to the difficult places of the Bible, as your child grows and, and, and matures in life, um, being there to show them wisdom in the midst of those circumstances is good and godly. And I'm going to tell you, some of the things your kids are going to throw at, you're probably not going to know the answer to, but man, consider a great place for your faith to grow. Like go look it up, man. (laughs) Email me. I don't care, but, but it's a good spot for, for you and the challenge of, of your walk with God. And, And that's the case here with the book of Ruth. It's messy. And, and Ruth in this circumstance is in an environment that has brought great turmoil and adversity to her. And I think it's kind of worn her down. In fact, when you start in in Ruth chapter three, verse one, Naomi gives a little insight to what's leading them to the decisions and the wisdom Naomi's about to give to Ruth. She says this, Ruth chapter three, verse one, then Naomi, her mother-in-law said to her, my daughter, shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? So you remember Ruth's circumstance. She comes out of a pagan idolatry background. She's new into this community, into this faith and learning what it means to walk with God. And now she's trusting in her mother-in-law who was a part of these people. And, and, and so Naomi says to Ruth, this is what we need to pursue now, uh, Ruth. We need to pursue security. 
Like the God of our lives in this moment is security. And so much so that they're going to leave behind their integrity in order to receive it. And you think about the situation Ruth's in right now. The harvest is coming to a conclusion of, of the land. So agriculturally, everything's been produced and they've gone through the fields and they've gleaned it. And, and now the fields are barren. How are you going to make it tomorrow? Naomi looks at this moment and realizes we've, we've been able to find enough to provide for the day. But now it's, it's important we think beyond. Ruthie needs some security. And in this security, Naomi's going to find security. And so they're looking for a long-term solution. And so this is the advice that Naomi gives to Ruth in, in verse 2. It says, Now is not Boaz our kinsman, with whose mage you were? Behold, he uh, winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. So Naomi goes back to this law in the Old Testament about a kinsman redeemer where if someone within the family perishes that a relative can marry that individual and it helps provide for that person so that they uh, can have the, the basic sustenance in life. And so they, they are reminded in these moments, Boaz is a kinsman redeemer. Now, Ruth is a little bit outside of those terms because she's not technically a Jew by birth, but Naomi is. And so she knows uh, Boaz is related to the family and so therefore he can operate as a kinsman redeemer. He can come in and, and redeem the family in that hardship. And so she goes on in verse three. Here's the plan. Wash yourself therefore and anoint yourself and put on your best clothes. This is, this is the college version of the smell test, right? Some of you adults probably still do that, right? <laughs> okay, uh, no one will repulse <laughs> around me. But go wash yourself, you dirty woman. You've been out in the fields all day. And get some nice clothes on and go into the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. It shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies. And you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will tell you what you shall do. And she said to her... Again, mothers, parents, I'm not telling you that this is prescriptive, but this is what the advice is. All that you say, I will do. Like go lay down to a guy who's partied all night, and as you're laying there in the middle of the night with him, utter these words. It's not wise. I mean, when you think about the context of, of this moment, um, she's saying, Boaz has a stable job. You should dull yourself up a little bit and go down to the threshing floor. Now, the threshing floor is the place where at the end of the season, everyone celebrates what's taken place over that year, the course of that year, all the labor that went into the, the harvest. And so now the harvest is finally taking place. You get to see the produce and you, you get to celebrate the provision that's there and, and how that has helped your family economically. Now, when you consider the context of Ruth, in, in Ruth's day, they have had a famine for 10 years. So you think, okay, there are these guys out here. They're on the threshing floor. They've worked all summer long. At the end, they're reaping uh, the benefits of this. And they're celebrating. And this hasn't happened for 10 years. This is a crazy place. Now, I'm not implying in the story that... Boaz gets lit and wasted, but I, I don't have any doubt in my mind, Boaz is a man of integrity, that people around Boaz lacking some of that might just not remember this day, right? And, and so what's happening, they're at this threshing floor, and, and historically, the threshing floor is not the place you typically want to see a woman. 
In, in fact, traditionally what's taught about the threshing floor in this time period is the type of women you see at this threshing floor might be culturally labeled in our society as like a lady of the night, a gold digger, prostitute, you know, something along those lines. Whatever your intentions are in being there, it is not good. And, and, and so when a woman goes to this place, at, at, especially during this time period, it is just not, it's not the type of place uh, you find a, a lady of integrity. And so this is, this is maybe where the phrase was invented. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? The threshing floor. What happens at the threshing floor stays at the threshing floor. This is not the kind of thing that you go home and share on the dinner table. And so this, Naomi knows exactly what this environment is like. And yet she encourages Ruth in this moment in the cover of night to not really make herself known until Boaz has had enough to drink. And then watch where he lays down and go lay down with him. And then utter these words, whatever you want. That's not, that's not the wise. I mean, when you think about Ruth and her environment, remember chapter two. Ruth's people did not get along with Naomi's people. Ruth in coming to Israel, she would have been the target for how everyone felt about that people group. She would have been the representative. We looked at that in chapter two, verse nine, verse 15, verse 16, verse 22, over and over Boaz and Naomi say to Ruth, uh, you better walk under the protection of some people when you go out in these fields because some real harm could happen to you. Boaz had to tell his people, don't say anything bad to this girl. Let this girl drink from the same place that you drink, please. Ruth would have faced a lot of hardship. And now you have this lady at nighttime going to the threshing floor at a place where men are not in their right minds. This is risky for her. This is not a place that you would want to find a a lady who wants to pursue God. And so this circumstance leads to a, a, a lot of shady moments. Now I'm going to tell you, um, Some commentaries, when they talk about Ruth chapter three, they try to give Ruth the benefit of the doubt and say that she's pursuing the Lord. And I think to a degree, I'll show you how I think that that might be true, but I I just don't think she's doing it wise. Now I'm going to tell you, this is a narrative. Feel free to differ with me on this. At the end of the day, I'm not losing any sleep over that. But when you have a lady going to a place like this, that's traditionally known this way at the cover of darkness, you're going to see in verse 14 that she even flees in that darkness uh, so that she's not recognized. It's saying to us, she probably knows this is not the place to be. And so in verse six to eight, it continues on. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain and she came secretly. Like, why do you have to come secretly? And uncovered his feet and lay down. It happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled and bent forward and behold, a woman was lying at his feet. Now, Boaz being a man of integrity, no doubt he's, he's shocked here in this moment, but Let's just think for for a second of what Ruth is going through. Ruth is a woman that pursues God. But just because you start the journey in pursuing God doesn't mean you're always going to live that journey perfectly. There are things in our life that we experience that weigh on us. 
There are things that we go through in life. Maybe you think even this year, 2018 has not been good to me. Whatever it takes just to get this off my back, I'm just willing to do it. That's, that's Ruth chapter three, verse one. We, we just need security. Whatever we have to do just to discover this. She, she is at a difficult place. It told us in, in, in chapter two of this book that Ruth worked from morning into evening. She labored hard. And now here she is at the end of the labor and she realized no matter how hard she worked, she only found enough for the day. Have you ever been in that place in your life where you're like, someone comes to you and they're, what's your, what's your three-year plan? And you're like, I, 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 don't even, I don't even know what I'm going to do tomorrow, man. Like, uh, if I could just live through today, if that could just happen, I, I, that's a success. You saying that just stresses me out, okay? How can I just survive in this moment? And, and Ruth's at a place where she realizes, okay, I got to have more of a long-term plan. I have no idea what I'm going to do. I know Boaz is godly, but whatever it takes, that's where she's at. She's raw, she's worn out, she's broken. I mean, she, she may still be grieving the death of her husband. She's trying to follow God. She looks to Boaz in the middle of following some bad advice and says, here's a man of God, but I'm literally gonna say to him, whatever it takes. Verse eight kind of lets you know just how taboo this might be culturally because it says in verse eight, in the story it's talking Ruth and Boaz, Ruth and Boaz, and she and he, and she and he. And you get to verse eight and it says this. And it happened in the middle of the night that the man, it's not even talking about Ruth and Boaz anymore, like mm, the man did over here and the woman was over here. That's how, The man was startled and bent forward and behold, a woman was lying at his feet. It's just like, we just don't really talk about this. This is how culturally um, awkward this is in, in this moment. And then it goes on in, in, in verse 9. He said, who are you? And she answered, I'm Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative. Then he said, may you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. So what he's saying is, what Boaz is saying is, Ruth, if your intentions in coming here were completely impure motives, you could have found any young man out in this place. But I'm, I'm not necessarily the best looking youngest man out of the bunch, right? And so he's recognizing she's at a, she's at a place of despair. But yet she's still looking for hope. And the person she chooses to come to is the most godly individual she's encountered since she's been in Israel. And in verse 9, she says something that, in, in this context, is culturally taboo as well. She actually proposes to Boaz. This isn't something that ladies did, but she says, I am Ruth, your maid, so spread your covering over your maid. What she's saying in this passage isn't, I'm cold, make me warm. That's not, that's not what's coming across here. What she's saying is a cultural statement of, will you betroth yourself to me? Will, will you enter into covenant marriage with me? And, and the way that we know this, there's a couple passages in the Bible, the same illustrations you use. In your uh, small group notes in the bulletin, I tell you, look at Ezekiel chapter 16. But if you look at Ruth chapter 2, if you just look one chapter over, when, when Ruth comes into the land of Israel, Boaz replies to her in verse 11. Let me read it starting in verse 11. All that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me. And how you left your father and your mother in the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. 
And he says in verse 12, May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel. Look at this. Under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. And Boaz is using covenantal language here. He's saying you've abandoned what was familiar by faith to pursue God in relationship in the promised land. May you take refuge under his wings. May God be your shelter. May may you become a part of this people. So when you think in terms of Bible, we think in terms of covenant. And God's desire for his people is to be a covenant people and belonging to him. The only other context we relate covenantally in relationship to in our society is marriage. Everything we base in our society is contractual, except for in marriage, it's covenantal. Contractual, we obligate two people to something. If one person doesn't uphold the deal, then the contract is broken and there's punishment. There could be a retribution for breaking a contract. Well, in covenantal language, it's about one person laying themselves 100% down for the benefit of someone else. That's covenantal language. And so what's happening in Ruth chapter 2 is Boaz is talking in covenantal language towards Ruth based on her faith in coming to the land of Israel in pursuit of this God. And now in chapter three, Ruth turns it around and uses that same language as if to say, okay, since God is now my covenantal provider, why don't you Boaz be the source of his covenantal provision by coming into this marital relationship with me? But in the end, whatever you want, I just need to survive. And sometimes we get to a place of desperation. And I think our convictions can wane. And you get to that place in life where everything weighs on you so much that you can't even make good decisions anymore because you feel you're under such pressure. And so Ruth looks to Naomi. And Naomi gives poor advice. But do you know what you need? You need a godly friend. Someone that loves your soul. The identity of who you are before God. Men and women, can I tell you... um, I don't expect any of us to be perfect. I know how this Christian walk goes. It's, it's messy. It's like Ruth's story. Right? You start the journey in faith, seeking after God. And things happen. And it weighs on you. And you need people around you that love you and care about you to encourage you down the path in which you ultimately seek in God. And that's where Boaz is. He says, starting in this verse, look, I I know, even though this isn't a place of integrity, that you haven't lost all your integrity by coming here, even though this isn't a great place, because if you were just interested in what you could get from somebody, you could have pursued any of these wasted morons out here. (laughs) But you didn't. And that says something about your heart in the midst of your desperation. That's what... You know, James chapter 2, verse 15, 17, the, the famous passages we say, faith without works is dead. Yeah, the evidence of your faith should show a genuine care for the soul of individuals uh, when they're at this place. First uh, uh, John chapter 3, verse 17 says, how can you say you love God if you don't care for your brother? 
And, and that's what Ruth needs in this moment. She needs an individual that's not going to take advantage of her. It's going to be there for her. And that's what Boaz represents. And that's what strong man is. That's, that's his character shining through. All of us, all of us when we live lives, we're going to go through mountaintops and we're going to go through valleys. And when we go through those valleys, we need to find the types of people that aren't seeking how to take advantage of the moment to get what they want, but rather have your interest in mind. And that's Boaz. Uh, Paul contrasted these types of people in his letter in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1. Listen to what he says. He says, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Verse 2, for men will be lovers of self. So in verse 6, this is what he says. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins led on by various impulses. Our culture needs men like Boaz. Let me ask the question, how many guys would find this tempting? All of them that breathe. But how many of them walk with integrity in it? One that puts the soul and the interests of the lady ahead of them. We all go through these mountains and valleys. We're not perfect, but community healthy in the Lord becomes essential to our walk with God. And we could even ask the question in these moments. You look at this, and sometimes we read the story like, ah, did, did Ruth really, did she go too far? Did she cross the line? Um, you ever have someone in life that maybe asked that question? Maybe you've asked that question. How far is too far when it comes to my relationship with God? Where is that boundary? Maybe you've even got that kid. We, we might have one in our family where it's like, Dad, where's the boundary? Right there? Right, right here? Is that right? <laughs> yeah, like, there's just something about human nature. It's like, how far can I go? <laughs> it's like, but can I tell you, when it comes to marriage, you think of it in terms of relationships that you are supposed to care about in life. Let's marriage relationship. Uh, what, if, what if the spouse said to another spouse, mm, how much time do I have to spend with you to look like we're really married? I mean, why, why can, when can I just spend time with you and just go do whatever I want the rest of the time? Yeah. If you're asking that question, we know we're already asking a question that's unhealthy towards the relationship. Like if you have to ask, did it cross the line? Maybe the indication is you've already stepped too far to begin with and your perspective isn't accurate because what you should drive towards if your interest is relationship is how can I pursue your heart? How can I love you? How can we experience that relationship? Fortunately for Ruth, Boaz pursues the Lord. I think Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he just reminds us, like rather than ask the question, how far is too far? He reminds us what, what God's desire is. He says this, 1 Thessalonians 5, 19. I'm just going to read a few verses starting in 19. He says, do not quench the spirit. Meaning the spirit of God wants to work in your life. If you're, if you're exercising on the basketball court and you're thirsty, quench it with some Gatorade, right? But when it comes to the spirit of God wanting to lead your life, do not quench that. Let, let God work that out in your life. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. So listen to truth, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now we, may, may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so what Paul is saying is, if we're asking the question, 
why does, why does God care about what I do? Well, I think the answer is twofold. <laughs> One is, is because he cares about his relationship with you and he wants to experience holistically the reason for which you were created to know him and enjoy him for all of eternity. And when there's tension in that relationship, that experience is not there. But God created you to belong to him. It's like when you have relationships in this world, when you and your spouse fight, I appreciate you sitting together today, but maybe you feel, even though you might be shoulder to shoulder, a distance apart because there's tension there and that's what it creates. So God very much cares. And on top of that, he he cares about the way you display him in this world. God wants his glory to be made known in and in you and through you that you with the mouth to proclaim the glory of God could point other people to the goodness of who he is. So yeah, he cares. And so Boaz, knowing this, I think he, he meets Ruth in her time of need and it says in verse 11, now my daughter, do not fear. Just let that phrase rest for a minute. Do you remember how verse one started? Ruth. You need security. And Boaz sees it. Ruth, do not fear. Ruth, you're acting out of worry. And it's got you to a place where you're low. But I want you to know how I'm going to be for you. I'm going to be a person of integrity. Do not fear. There's trust here. Ruth, you have my heart. Because God has my heart. Do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask. For all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. Now it is true that I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Remain this night and when morning comes, if he will redeem you, good. Let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. Ruth, let your soul rest. The law of the land was that the kinsman redeemer had to be the closest relative. But if the closest relative didn't want to assume that position, then another relative could. And so Boaz is following the law, but what he says to her at the beginning and the ending of this, I want to be a friend to allow your soul to rest. You know, one of the good things that we see in this relationship, we know that Boaz and Ruth are going to get married, but we, we see this equal yoking between the two of them. Yes, Ruth may be at a spot where she's low, but they're going to be looking out for the interests of others, uh, each other because they're pursuing God together. Guys, can I tell you this? Um, I think it's, it's good for us to walk in life with integrity, especially uh, for, for women. But um, there comes a place sometimes in life where we want something for someone that they don't even want for themselves. Right? And so in, in their marital relationship or pursuing this relationship, just because Boaz um, may want a, a godly spouse doesn't necessitate that she's always going to pursue godliness. You can't want it for someone else. They've got to want that relationship with the Lord. But then you see in this context that in the middle of this, because he sees the type of integrity and desire that she has for God in her life, that they use this to pursue uh, that relationship. And in so doing, Boaz passes this test of temptation. Uh, you think about what your testimony is in life. Your testimony comes out of testing. 
So if you want to know what you actually might proclaim that you live for, the answer is by the evidence of what your life has already demonstrated. That is your testimony. And and so Boaz, in, in this moment, honors with integrity Ruth and her position. And goes on and continues to show us Rather than praying on Ruth, she, he's praying for Ruth. And, and it says in verse 14, so, lay at his, so she lay at his feet until morning and rose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. So he's saying again, this was not the best decision. But in verse 15, again, he said, give me the cloak that is on you and hold it. So she held it and he measured six measures of barley and laid it on her. Then she went into the city. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did it go, my daughter? And she said to her all that the man had done for her. And so what you see in the life of Boaz in this moment is he's, he's literally pouring life in, into Ruth. He's taking the sustenance of what he has and he's meeting her need in this moment out of love and care for, for her life. God, through Boaz, provides grace, grace uh, to Ruth. And then it goes on in, in verse 17 and 18. She said, these six measures of barley he gave to me for he said, do not go to your mother, mother-in-law with empty hands. Then she said, wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out for the man will not rest until he has settled it today. He's not going to leave her hanging. He's a man of integrity, cared about her, and he's getting this done to make sure that this young woman is provided for. And so he doesn't just leave her hanging, but he shows care for her. And let me just point out one of the, one of the good things about this relationship early on is that trust is built from the beginning. And the reason I know that is 10 years from now, if Ruth and Boaz are in a place where Boaz might have to go out of town for business, Ruth doesn't have to worry what Boaz is up to. And the reason he doesn't is because he, she witnessed the way he treated her in a moment where his integrity could have been compromised. Trust is built. And God uses the life of Boaz to honor Ruth. But it's messy. It's messy. It says to us as, as, as people, we need encouragement. We, we need people around us and encouragement. But, but what do you do? I mean, you read a story like this and you see the messiness of the situation. And, and if any part of your life, I mean, you, in living life, you know you cannot escape life unscathed. Temptation is around you all the time. What do you do? You think about Ruth, her moment, her situation, it's compromising, it's, it's not good, it doesn't look good, she has to sneak away at night to kind of cover this up, like in our lives, just like Ruth's narrative is messy, our narrative is messy, as people, we carry that stuff around, like it weighs on our hearts, like you wonder how God might think of you in those moments, does God love you, does God care about you, I mean, you might, might reflect on it in your mind years down the road of just the stupid decisions that we could make as people. Like, what, what is there for you in that moment? 
It's great Ruth had Boaz, but what about you? <laughs> what do you do? I mean, Ruth's, the reason Ruth is in the Bible is because Ruth's story is our story. Ruth is telling uh, the way God works in her life to bring about the promise of the Messiah. And she's using Boaz in this story as a picture of a redeemer, which Jesus can ultimately be in our lives. So so in the midst of Ruth's hardship and knowing we've walked life like this and life can weigh us down and we we get to places I don't even want to think about tomorrow, but I know tomorrow is important. And the pressure of that leads me to places I I might just compromise just to be done with it. And and if I've stepped into that in my life, what does God do? Does God love me? How do I respond? And the weight of life. I want to read to you Psalm 51. I'm not, I don't have it on the screen. But Psalm 51 is the Psalm David wrote. And interesting about Psalm 51 is David um, did not have that gracious step of Boaz in front of him to prevent him from going further. And so when David writes Psalm 51, it's on the backdrop of adultery with Bathsheba and, and, and the murder of Uriah to try to cover that affair. And so David writes this Psalm because his soul is grieved. And you get to that place where you, you know you've blown it. And even though you may have even been with the person that you've been in that situation with and they forgive you. You still wear it. Like Psalm 51 is that Psalm. So I'll say to you today, like you want to find some freedom and you want to figure out what that next step is. Let your soul rest in Psalm 51 this, this week. This is, this is your prescription. Okay. Listen to this, Psalm 51. David starts off his prayer like this. Be gracious to me. O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Verse four, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. It's interesting. I mean, I just told you the backdrop. Adultery and murder. And you read verse 4, and David says, against you and you only have I sinned. Like, wait a minute. We're talking about adultery and murder. How can you come to verse 4 and make a statement like that? Can I tell you, what makes the violation of murder and adultery? A lot of times in life when we think about those things, we think about getting caught and how bad we feel. Or we think about the way it might make other people feel. Like you, you think of Uriah's family now. That whole family has to move forward without Uriah. How bad of a thing I've done because of the way I've made them feel. And no doubt that's not, that's not a, a healthy thing for people to, to walk through. It's a difficult thing to experience. It's sin, it's wrong, right? But do you know what makes it wrong? It's that God is the God of life. And when you take a life, you violate the very nature of God. It's that God is the God of purity. And when you go outside the bounds of purity, you violate the very nature of God. God is the God of truth. 
And when you lie to someone else, you don't just harm them, you violate the very nature of God. You know why even, even when you lie and you get caught in a lie and, and someone might say something to you and they apologize, you apologize and they forgive, you know why your soul still wrestles with that? It's because what made that wrong, though it is against another individual, is ultimately it's against God. And so your soul finds no peace in that. And they can tell you they forgive you all day long, but you need a, de- a deeper reconciliation. Now listen, pursue reconciliation with people. That's a godly thing. But ultimately, the person that, that gave you value, the person that gave humanity value, the person that gave us truth and life and meaning and worth and purity and holiness, all of that is God. So anything that we ever do and act against someone else ultimately is a violation against God himself. And so when David is making this heart cry, I, I, no doubt David recognizes what it's done relationally between him and people, but his soul is not finding rest. This is something that torments him. He wears it on his innermost being, though other people don't see it. The countenance is on the inside. And so he still walks with us in life. And so what does he do? Psalm 51. He cries out to God. And, and let me just skip a little bit ahead. If I start in verse, verse 7, listen to this. He says to God then, Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. He's saying in, in, in Israel's day when they would sprinkle the, the blood of an animal sacrifice, they would use the hyssop branch and the sprinkling of the blood, which is a, a, a reflection of the forgiveness of sins, which Jesus ultimately does for us. Now you think about the cross of Christ. It is a beautiful place where the justice of God and the grace of God just collide. If God weren't just, he could not be good. And so the justice of God is poured out on Christ on your behalf. The blood of Jesus, the sprinkling of Christ can be on you. And the grace of God made known because of the sacrifice of him. And so he's saying, sprinkle me with that blood, with the hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And the psalm goes on. Rejoicing of David before God. Here's the point, guys. Ruth's life was messy. It was hard. And so is life today. Life is messy and life is hard. And a person in this room is going to go through unscathed. What does God think? Where's your soul right now? Does it grieve? Does it hurt? Is it broken? Psalm 51 is so beautiful. It, it says in the midst of the pain, even caused by herself, God wants you. No matter how broken God wants you, God loves you, God renews you, God purifies you, God forgives you. You understand what to do with the depth of your soul when it aches. It's saying that the ultimate problem doesn't just rest here. The reconciliation is good. That is God. What your soul needs is forgiven and cleansed by God. And what your soul can receive is forgiveness and cleansing by God. 
So that when you take a step forward today, it's not because I'm a, I'm a person walking in condemnation, but it's a person walking in freedom. And here's the other side of that, because sometimes in life we may not find ourselves where Ruth is. Maybe we find ourselves where Boaz is. And so let me just say this. Guys, we need each other. There, there's a reason the Bible refers to the body of Christ not as individuals, but as a unit corporately, as God's people. I hope when you think about church, you don't think about it as a building, but you think about it as God's individual people redeemed in him. It is a body serving together. That's why, uh, that's why Galatians 4 and Ephesians 4 and Romans 12 and, and, and 1 Corinthians 12 talk about the gifting of God's body and the way that we serve each other. Because at some point you're going to be on the mountain, at other points you're going to be in the valley, and we need each other. What the Bible is saying to us is we're not getting there by ourselves. <laughs> Where God has called you, we go together. And so we, we, we carry that a, 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 as a community and there's a need for each other. There's a reason scripture says one another over 50 times within the Bible. The way you love and care and are there for one another. Because you don't do this alone. You can't do this alone. Ruth could not make it alone no matter how, how godly her heart felt. She needed community. She needed people that loved her soul. We're thinking about Ruth. If I just threw out the passage, the Proverbs 31 woman. If you're a lady that's been a Christian for a while, you know, Proverbs 31 ministries, right? <laughs> like I don't, I've never read anything for, by it. So I'm not, I'm not trying to endorse it. I'm just that we just know passage in the Bible. that talks about a godly woman, Proverbs 31, right? But I want to tell you ladies, just to kind of throw the monkey off your back. I don't think Proverbs 31 is a real woman. I, I, I think it's a description of a godly woman, but I don't think she's real. When you read her, she's, she's like a super woman kind of woman, you know? And, and I don't think like, if you look at Proverbs 31 today, you know, if you're, you know, in your thirties, you're thinking, I want to be Proverbs 31 woman. You look at that, you're like, not a chance in my life. I just want you to know, I think this is described over a lady walking in godliness through the duration of her life. Okay. So it's not saying instantaneous ladies, this is what you need to be. But this is a lady who has walked with God her entire life. If she's even real, right? But can I tell you something about the Proverbs 31 woman? Let me, let me read a few verses. Uh, verse 10, an excellent wife, who can find her? For her worth is far above jewels. Or verse 30, charm is deceitful and beauty, beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord, she is to be praised. And then in between it describes her. Because can I tell you, behind every godly woman as Proverbs 31, there's a godly man. You can't live a life like that without, without someone around you. It may, it doesn't necessitate that you need to be married, but you need godly friendships. You need to know when you're at the threshing floor, someone's going to show up and say, you're a person of integrity. I've seen the kind of life that you've lived. I'm here to love you. I'm here for you because we need each other. What I'm saying to us this morning, guys, in the midst of this story, life is messy, God knows it. And we don't have to whitewash it. God's big enough. God's big enough. However deep your sin feels, His grace runs deeper still. Psalm 51 is the cry of our soul. God, I need hope. 
I need rest. God, create in me a clean heart. Against you and you only have I sinned. But God, restore my soul. In the midst of that healing, God, let me find those around me who care for me as you care. Church, wherever you are today, whether you're Ruth or Boaz, and God can write a beautiful story among us as we walk that path. This message has been brought to you by Alpine Bible Church in Lehigh, Utah. If you'd like more information, please visit us online at alpinebible.com.